0: This week's edition of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, friend to BBWAA members everywhere, Jeffrey Paternostro. And with me this week, you may know him best as Greg from Manhattan. It's Greg Carum. Greg, this morning on MLB Network, Sandy Alderson compared Wilmer Flores to Cal Ripken Jr. Again, sort of, by saying, like Cal Ripken, Wilmer Flores, or ever played, uh, or unlike Flores or whatever, Cal Ripken never played shortstop in the minors. That's not really a comp. Now that I think about it, because Wilmer Flores did play shortstop in the minors, but we'll say for the purposes of this question, as I'm already making a complete hash of the intro, that Sandy Alderson, comped Wilmer Flores, to Cal Ripken Jr. So what ludicrous comp? It doesn't have to be baseball or even sports-related. Would you put on Wilmer Flores?
1: Well, I am going to go with the baseball cop, but, just, um, that's, that's but uh, I would say that using that same logic, take a guy like, let's, let's say he's like A-Rod, because he's, uh, he's basically going to have to move off shortstop at some point. So by that logic of uh, comparing him to Ripken, I think you can make the same argument there have to move off
0: shorts at some point. I went in a slightly different direction, perhaps unsurprisingly. Um, He is Hispanic, he's from Venezuela, and has at times had a questionable hairstyle that could be described as mullet-like. So I'm going with Razor Ramon. (laughs)
1: See the next? you're talking
0: about like yeah a little yeah. 90s wrestling <laughs>
1: yeah
0: I mean they don't really look anything alike and he's not a professional wrestler Wilmer Flores obviously but they have about as much in common as Wilmer Flores and Caribbean jr. for comp purposes
1: now I'm picturing, I'm picturing Flores diving and missing
0: for a ground ball and getting up and doing the razor's edge yeah Kelsey, so you want us to do the little toothpick flip or whatever it was?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah.
0: Instead of getting pinned by the 1-2-3 kid, he gets uh, brought low by the minus twelve point three UZR next year. It's probably a bit of a stretch. Yeah. That way I did. I didn't write that one out ahead of time. I just shouted out the first thing that came to mind. There, not so good. It's episode one hundred and two, the not so live Snow Day edition. Last week was the live Snow Day edition, and it, you know, we learned some things. As I said on the podcast several times, I will try it again. It wasn't the worst thing we've ever done on the show. I feel like.
1: No, look, you got the job done.
0: It got it. It, it accomplished. We, there was a podcast last week. It was about an hour. Uh, we'll try it again, maybe with more warning. There are a lot of people that emailed even this week being like, yeah, I couldn't call in because I was at work. And I realized, I assume most of our audience is in New York, but maybe some of those people had to work as well. And it wasn't practical to do a call-in show at 5.30 in the afternoon. But at some point in the future, we'll try it again, maybe on like a regular Monday night recording time, like this one. So the agenda for episode 102, look, the Mets didn't do anything outside of Sandy Alderson saying silly things on the MLB network. So we're going to let you set the agenda. That's right, it's going to be an email show. So we have emails on prospect trades, charitable baseball, sliders, the pitch, not the TV show. As our as our email hopefully will clarify. Uh, and minor league part factors. Or as we call it around here, the usual. Also, also later in the show, Steve Sippa will rejoin the show to help. Uh, I plug the ARG every week, but We'll let Steve do it this week since he's sort of the uh, organizer of the event. It's this Saturday at the Ginger Man. And since Steve's going to be on the show, we do have to talk about the Royal Rumble. So that's the thing that's going to happen. And where does the WWE go from here? We'll kick things off for episode 102 with your emails. And before we do emails, we do housekeeping. This is Amazing Avenue Audio, episode 102. It makes more sense when I say it 45 minutes into the show and haven't announced the episode number five seconds previous and we are the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site Amazon Avenue you can find us on the internet at AmazonAvenue.com follow us on Twitter at AmazonAvenue and join our Facebook group at facebook.com backslash Avenue fans. my rhythm's off I'm not used to doing housekeeping this early it's just, just it's thrown right into it it's not good you can find the podcast on iTunes just search for Mason Avenue Audio, and you can listen or subscribe right there. And I was prepared this week. I have our two reviews. Oh, for the month of January, and they're both excellent. Uh, one calls us the Velvet Underground of Mets podcasts. I've made that reference before, obviously. And uh, Mason Avenue Audio embraces the sometimes dark reality of being a Mets fan. Mixing in minor league scouting, sabermetrics, booze, clever jingle, second division soccer, and anything else that is a worthy distraction. And look, I love all our email, all our uh, reviews. I cherish each and every one of them, even the kind of mediocre one when we were first starting out, where the guy said I needed a pop filter, which I went out and got. But this is my favorite. Uh, it's the John Sheridan of podcasts, in reference to the famous Sheffield Wednesday midfielder. Extremely talented, oozes class, and slightly drunk. That may just be our tagline from now on. I'd also have been fine if it was the Babylon 5 captain. That was a show I enjoyed as a teenager. So either way, it works. John Sheridan, of course, course most famously scoring the winning goal in uh, Sheffield Wednesday's last uh, cup win. Their last trophy. The 91 League Cup Final against Manchester United. Well, wow, that's, uh, that's a long time ago. It is it's a long time ago. But there's good news on that front, too. It's transfer deadline day. They just got bought by a by a scion from a Thai tuna consortium. I've been told it's not the actual consortium itself. It's like the younger brother of the owner of the Thai frozen foods group in question. But they bought four players. Well, one loan and three signings on transfer deadline day, which is A, more players than the Mets signed all offseason. And be uh, a nice sign for the future. It's not like they were, you know, s- splashing crazy money around, but they went out and got players that will improve the squad and spent money to do it. It's it, you can do that it's in other nice. sports like baseball. It's nice. It's
1: nice to have all that have money.
0: You can also listen to the podcast on the Stitcher app, download directly from BlogTalkRadio.com backslash Amazon Avenue, or listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post on Amazon Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. My co-hosts this week are Greg Caram and Steve Sippa. You can follow them on Twitter at Greg Caram and at Steve Sippa. That was a housekeeping. These are your emails. You can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. And our first email is from Hank. Dear Mr. Paternostro and Consigliere, are you my wartime Consigliere or my peacetime Consigliere, Greg? I did watch
1: the Godfather last week.
0: There you go. Very badly. I would like to ask about Mets prospects and prospects in general. Also, a trade idea. We're not uh, afraid of either of those topics on the show. Well-trodden ground, certainly. I like the Mets' hitting prospects, but I don't see a David Wright or Jose Reyes coming out of the group. I don't see a guy with 80 speed, 70 hit, or 60 power in the minors. I see future useful major league players, but I don't see stars. For the last five years, all we have done is watch kids develop, and it's not a pretty sight. Parnell, Nice, Murphy, Duda, etc., did not arrive in MLB as the players they are now. It was a struggle, a grind, and a lot of adjustments had to be made. It also hurt the major league team. I thought Donuts was going to be a right Ureyes type player, but even he is going through growing pains. Donuts and Lagaris are still developing and could struggle again next season. I don't want Flores added to those two question marks in the lineup. Three out of eight unknowns in the lineup every day is a lot. Wright is 32, Granderson is 33, and Kadir is 35, and Harvey is a free agent in four years. I think the Mets need to trade some of these prospects, whose ceiling is just useful major league player for current proven useful major league players. I like Nemo, but I don't see a star coming from him. He could be a good leadoff hitter in a year or two, or even three. But if you're having your leadoff hitter coming from a corner, it's a waste of power position in my opinion. I think the Mets should trade Nimmo, Montero, and maybe another lower-level prospect for Starlin Castro. There's a name we haven't talked about in a month or so, maybe? By shortstop standards, we're reaching back a little bit for this show. Nimmo can play center field and lead off for the Cubs, and Castro is a proven solid shortstop right now. I say that the Cubs waste at-bats watching him develop, and the Mets can go with proven Major League players at every position. Do you think the Mets should go for the proven bats, or can they afford to waste at-bats on developing players? So there's a very good point in here, and one I think we've talked about on occasion. And that's sort of going back to the window for this Mets roster. The second most crazy thing Sandy said on the MLB network today is that they didn't feel like they had to do much this offseason because they see 10 wins of improvement just on the squad as, as currently comprised year over year. You know, but as Hank said, that's a lot of risk, and you're betting on 75th percentile outcomes for everyone. So, this might be the time where you want to consider moving some of those top end prospects for better, slash, more stable, in terms of sort of projectable outcome, offensive players. I think that's reasonable.
1: It's, it's not, it, it, the thing is with the, the prospects that he has, while well, the Nets have a lot of top uh, you yeah. know, not so many guys at the top, like, you know, yeah. they don't have these yeah. stud prospects mm-hmm. to reject to, you know, Reyes or Wright, right Hank So, uh, <coughs> it, it, it would make sense to have a match some of guys to get some better. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, uh, I'm not sure if, you know, someone has to do it with, but I'm also not sure if they would move it to that kind of package.
0: We'll get to the Cubs deal itself in a second, but I think you hit on the main point here, which is if you don't want to deal Matz or Syndergaard, um, finding a true upgrade is going to be tough. You know, look at the guys you're going to be trading past those two. Um, You know, three of your top five prospects, at least on my list, this year, they're really your 2015 depth. You're talking about Nimo, Pleweki, and Herrera. You know, given the injury risks at catcher and corner outfield, and even let's say third base, because you know, Wright gets hurt and you know, maybe Murphy slides over and Herrera comes up. They've kind of boxed themselves in with this roster that they've created over this off season, as much as they've you know, created a roster. Um
1: They need these guys these they need these guys to pan out. Yeah. You know, more than one, two. I mean, that's really
0: projecting. And I think that, as far as a trade goes, I mean, yeah, if you throw Mats or Syndergaard out there, you're still going to get a bite, even though we're into February now. Teams will listen. But I think the ship's kind of sailed on a on a on a big name, and those top tier players cost money. Even Castro is on a very reasonable deal. You know, you're adding you know, the deal that Hank comprised, you're know, trading you know 500,000 a year guys cost control pre-arb guys taking on you know 8 to 10 million they can't afford to do that and the cubs from the cubs position they're they position themselves to win now by signing John Lester so I don't see them dealing Castro in 2015 Addison Russell needs time uh, Baez makes Flores look like Murphy in terms of stable, projectable outcomes. And, you know, Starling Castro gives him the best chance to win now. And I still think it does take more than that. It's a cheap deal, somewhat proven commodity. I don't love it, but we've seen the price for shortstops, any shortstop, and it's pretty high. But Hank's right. You know, that's three pretty big questions. Look, I believe in Travis Darno. I think Darno. I don't think he's going to be... You know, Joe Maurer off the bat. I think he's a guy, I think he's going to hit this year. I believe in the bat. You know, 260-20 bombs. That's very, very nice for your catcher. But yeah, Juan Lagares, Wilmer Flores have offensive questions. And if they don't hit enough for every day, there's no backup plan. And there's no major leaguer or organizational depth if the older players get hurt. And especially not if you're dealing from sort of that that next tier of prospects. Those are your organizational depth, basically.
1: Yeah. They need these guys to pan out.
0: They do. And if if they do, you know what? It's a high variance team. Alderson's not wrong. They could be ten wins better this year just from internal improvements. They could also be ten minutes ten wins worse if people get hurt or regress. Yeah,
1: they they also might have their you know their own own methodology to do it. Eight of
0: those wins might come from hard their calculations. Yeah, good luck with that. Our next email is from Jimmy. Hey guys, sorry I missed the live call-in show. I would have called in with this question, but was stuck working that day despite the snow. I know you and others have talked up the Dan Worthen slider. That's a big reason for Harvey Me- Mejia and DeGrom's relative success at the Major League level. Other than Gabby Yanoa, what Mets pitching prospects in the upper minors you see as good candidates to take up the Dan Wortham slider and be able to show marked improvements because of it? Thanks, and keep up the good podcasting. So... Well, I think we first need
1: to define yes, that what we mean by the Dan you know,
0: Wharton slider. Right, i it, This is like a correlation versus causation kind of thing. It just happens that, you know, it's a timing issue. It just so happens that every, not every, but most of the good Mets pitching prospects have suddenly developed mid-80s or above sliders with late break that can act like sort of a cutter-slutter hybrid type pitch shortly after coming up to the majors and working with Dan Wortham. Um you know, just for context, this was the average slider velocity um, well for 2014 for DeGrom and Wheeler, 2013 for Harvey. Jacob DeGrom, 87 miles an hour. Wheeler, 89. Harvey, 90. That's all up significantly from minor league reports. I had DeGrom, like, I think 81 to 84 with a slider. Wheeler was more like mid-80s. You know, Harvey yeah, know. was, again, sort of in that 81 to 84 range when he was in the minors. And so, you know, as the example I use, and again, I don't know if it's the Worthen slider, but he went from a low 80s slider in 2013 you know, to a mid-80s slider in 2014, as high as 86 in the playoffs. That could just be normal development. He started to get certainly more stabilization in his fastball velocity start to start, and a little bit of a tick-up overall, but that's a, that's a nice thing if it continues. Is it the Dan Worthen slider? I don't know. Again, it's without getting into who's actually, you know, actually talking to Dan Worthen or the picture scene who's actually, you know, the developmental process these guys have gone through. But calling it the Worthen slider is easy enough shorthand, I think. And these are all, these are all big grade jumps too, is the other thing. It's not like, um, uh, you mean the, With the you pitch, mean as soon as they learned it, yeah, it's not just they, they're throwing it harder. It's a, though generally, if you throw the pitch harder, it's going to be a better pitch. Um, you know, Degrom went from having a slider that flashed average to you know a slider that sits closer to there. Wheeler went from a you know flash average to flash plus. Harvey went from you know fifty five to seventy, which is a pretty big jump. Um, And
1: the Wheeler one it's (laughs) like more out
0: of nowhere, right? And he's sort of a little bit of the of the outlier here, I think, because I'm not opposed to two breaking balls for your starter. I know, like Keith Law and some others, have sort of, as far as like a developmental process goes, are they don't like seeing that. But if you have a projected plus curve, you know maybe don't mess with it. So that's the caveat. You just almost teach it to Stephen Matz and Noah Syndergaard. Yeah,
1: he's yeah. also got a very uh, atypical, I feel slider. The, like the movement on it, it's just it's very just it's very just like up and down. It's not, not much of you know sweeping um, action on it. You know.
0: Yeah, and there was a whole thing where the slider didn't really help him, but made him throw his curve harder, sort of took the velocity up there. And they played around with Mats, with the slider in 2013 before they scrapped it and went back to the curve. Um, You know, as you said, Wheeler was more fastball curve when he came over from the Giants. And it's a slightly different situation, sort of given his lack of a a changeup at the time and even now. You know, the, the guys that sort of fit the mold, you know, Harvey had two average, maybe... 55 breakers. There wasn't a standout breaking ball here. Now, Degrom didn't have an average breaking ball, certainly. So you teach that, try to give them an extra, a little extra edge, and you know if it's that mold, because then they've again they've dabbled with the curve with him, but he didn't really have one to speak of. And he already has some feel for the change, which I think makes learning a new breaking ball grip somewhat easier than sort of the reverse. I think it's easier to develop a breaking ball if you have a good feel for the change than, than vice versa.
1: As, you know, as far as candidates to uh, develop <coughs> the, the slider, uh, probably go
0: with Montero. See, yeah, it's but it's always tough because on. he doesn't throw a hard one. He's never really developed. I mean, they've tried a d- bunch of different things with his slider. I thought about Domingo Tapia too, but that arm slot's not great. You know, Marcos Molina already throws one. You know, Matt Bowman's a guy that could use that kind of a pitch. He does have a harder slider, sort of a cutter in relation to sort of his humpy slow curve. Yeah, or Mazzoni. But Mazzoni, sure. You know, a fastball split guy could definitely, actually, Mazzoni might be the best case, but you know, it, it's it's not as simple as showing a guy a grip or an arm action. You know, an arm slot plays as a, plays into it here too. And sometimes guys improve, but you don't want to call it a worth and slider. I mean, G's got better, but there wasn't really a tick up in velocity or I think a change in, in shape. He just got more a more consistent slider under Dan Worthen without it being the Dan Worthen slider, per se. So I guess the too-long-didn't-read here is pitchers, especially pitching prospects, are more case-by-case beasts than hitting prospects. Now, there's more specialization within their development. Right? Maybe it's just their development is less predictable and kookier but I don't think it hurts by treating it as a specialization or case-by-case kind of thing where you look at the pitcher and what can you do with this pitcher given the pitches he already has, his arm slot, his ability to repeat. Um, But I will say this, they're 4-for-4 so far developing that pitch with a cautious 5-for-5 with Genoa, so fuck it, teach it to everybody. (laughs) you know what's the i mean i guess the worst that can happen is these guys become reliant on their slider it does especially a hard slider it does increase the risk of elbow injuries but pitchers get hurt so until they get hurt one way or the other you might as well try to make them better pitchers our next email is from gabriel hello jeffrey and not jeffrey my question is in regards to player development when you look at the park factors of the Mets' minor league affiliates, most of them are pretty close to neutral except for two that stick out. Cashman Field in Vegas, historic Grayson Stadium in Savannah. I'll also throw in uh, MCU Park in Brooklyn. It's a fairly extreme pitcher's park. Um, by some park factors, uh, even more extreme than Grayson as far as left-handed power goes. I think this seems pretty advantageous because it gives the front office the opportunity to evaluate both pitchers and hitters in extreme environments. Ooh. Theoret- are you packing for a trip out there?
1: You know what was in my
0: pocket. Oh my god! Theoretically, it's good to see how Thor and Montero react to the thin air, and fast in fields of Vegas. Just as it's good to see Dominic Smith learn to use all fields, because savannah is where left-handed power goes to die. The adversity is supposed to help them along in their development. Also, theoretically, you could pump up their trade value by placing them in favorable situations. Perhaps the Mets are banking out Ploweki blowing up Vegas and being the lead trait chip for a major upgrade in July. My question is, given that you had both an extreme pitching and extreme hitting environment in your minor league system, where would you want them in the developmental ladder? Closer to the big leagues in order to maximize trade value, or further down towards instructure to emphasize mental toughness, and try to consolidate the gains in the mental approach earlier. How does City Fields Park Factor play into your decision? I think I'd like Triple A to be pro pitcher and double A to be pro hitter, but I'd love to know what y'all think. Or do you think that extreme environments are a hindrance and all the minor league parks should play neutral or even like mini city fields? Thanks for giving me one to two hours a week to scratch my Mets itch during the long, cold, baseballless winter, Gabe. P.S. I'm sorry the Twins got out of New Britain and you'll mix Buxton and Ceno this year. And you'll instead be treated to Rockies farmhands. Tough break. Um, a note on that. And yes, that's not... That is a thing that happened. New Britain is now a Rockies affiliate. I will say, though, that the Rockies system to start, you know, I don't know about long-term, how it's going to play out, but for 2015, I got a shot at Eddie Butler, depending on how healthy he is. And by the second half, I could have Kyle Freeland, David Dahl, Ramil Tapia, Ryan McMahon. That's plenty of interesting names. But yeah, it's not Sunil and Buxton. <laughs> uh, on minor league park factors, neutral is best. We can adjust for the environment. I mean, the- California League exists. And, you know, from my perspective, I'm looking at stuff unrelated most of the time to what might get affected by thin air or big power alleys. I do think weird parks can create bad habits. Um, These guys are driven to succeed by their nature and by the fact that they're professional baseball players, even at the lower levels. So they're they're going to do what they have to to succeed that can lead to bad adjustments yes you can coach that out of them yes you emphasize development over results but when a guy's out there on the mound and he can't get his curve to break the way he wants because of the air the altitude you know does he start overthrowing does he start altering his mechanics to snap off that breaking ball. That, it makes me a little nervous. You know, fastball command in Grayson, it doesn't have to be that fine. I mean, yes, they're out there working on that, but if you know you can throw a 93-mile-an-hour fastball down-ish in the zone somewhere, and if it gets a lot of plate, it's a long fly ball to Champ Stewart, you can get into bad habits. And it's sort of all those things, though, working all fields, the mental toughness, you can teach those things in neutral parks. Baseball is hard, even minor league baseball. These guys are going to fail, and that's what your, your minor league coaching should be doing. You should be, you know, Dominic Smith should be working if he's supposed to be working on going to the opposite field. Should be working on going to the opposite field in St. Lucie too. You know, it doesn't have to be Grayson. He shouldn't get punished when he just absolutely craps on a 91 mile hour fastball up. He can pull. That doesn't. I don't think that's a a net positive. Yeah,
1: that that, that whole explanation of what he was doing seems a little crazy to me. Full talk narrative, but uh, I agree. I, I don't think you want uh, extreme environments in any part of your development environment. I don't think one's better than the other. I don't think placing one at AAA and having one the other one at it, AA, like, it's it's just not going to help. It's it's I think, like you said, neutral's best. Any kind of extreme, in terms of like environment too, like you, know, you, de- you definitely wouldn't want a AAA like Vegas environment in you know you're definitely in your lower minors while you're still trying to learn pitches and, and find that repertoire. So I think that it, from that perspective, it's maybe good that it's you know AAA where you're basically you're almost at the level that you're going to be. Related, but you know I don't, I don't want any extreme environments at any just it, 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 not only is it not helping development it also like it's just annoying to, to, <laughs> explain it to everybody people you know jump into conclusions and uh, it's just it's the worst
0: and I don't think it does much for these guys value I mean Scouts see these guys and they know the parks, they know the league they know the environment they're in. And again, they're looking for things other than a guy who hit a ball 420 feet in Asheville or High Desert. And you know, players don't—you know, neutral park, yeah. Players—it's not like players haven't broken out for this organization in St. Lucy and St. Lucy and Binghamton, which are probably the fairest parks and leagues in the system. Um, but I mean, yeah, you're you're at the mercy of the affiliate system. It's who you end up with. In a lot of cases, you know, they may stay with the Savannah group. They may move to Charleston or Columbia. Sorry. uh, Next year, they might build a stadium that's a extreme pitcher's park. They're stuck with that. It might be another pitcher, uh, another hitter's park. They're stuck with that. It could be completely neutral and they're stuck with that. You don't get to. I mean, you can try to set your system up so you're in more neutral parks, but then you can do do things like piss off Norfolk and Buffalo. <laughs> and that doesn't happen anymore. Um, I think, yeah, I just think I don't think it's the end of the world that they're in Vegas and Savannah. And I think it comes down to your coaching. And it comes down to the individual player in a lot of cases. Um, but i given a choice. You know, give me Binghamton and St. Lucie.
1: The current
0: mix is very annoying. <laughs> that way. Our last email is from David. Hi, Jeff and co-host. Harper from the Mets Boys and Desert Island Mets podcast here. I have been on Desert Island Mets. I, I enjoyed it greatly. As I think I've said on the show before. It's a slow day at work, and while trawling through old Facebook pics, I came across the one attached. The second front row, second from the left. Okay, I can see it. Everyone's in Celtic kits. Not surprising. When I took part in Football Aid at Celtic Park a couple of years ago, it got me to wondering if this is something that could translate to baseball and could raise a lot of money for charity maybe during the All-Star break. The concept of Football Aid is a football club hosts a couple of matches in their stadium, in which the players are all fans who have to pay to play on the hallowed turf of their favorite team. Some positions are sold for set prices, and some are auctioned off with an ex-pro playing in each side. They have a set amount of positions that are for the entire game, and some positions that cost less but you would only play the first or second 45 minutes. I played 450 pounds sterling to play as the first half center half for the home side, which was important as I meant I was wearing the famous green and white hoops while the opposing side wore the away kit. 450 for center half. If you're a, a, a bigger bloke and don't want to run a lot, that makes sense. To summarize the day, when I arrived at Celtic park, I entered via the main player's entrance to the stadium where I was then shown to the player's lounge to meet my teammates and the SPL trophy, Scottish premier league for those of you, uh, following along at home. Celtic had lifted the previous day. We went from there to the dressing room, home and away, depending on who you were playing for. In the dressing room, all our kits were hanging up with our names on the back, kits that were ours to keep. We then had our warm-up, then played the game, which is something I'll imagine I'll struggle to surpass in the rest of my life. Friends and family were in the main stand, and had access to the director's box and a cash bar for drinks, food, etc. The match was also filmed, and I have a DVD of this, along with hundreds of pictures of stuff most fans can only dream of doing. Is this something that could translate to baseball? How much would you be willing to pay to play for the Mets at Citi Field, and in what position? Keep up the great work every week. Let's go Mets, Harper. I love this question. Um, so there's a few things to unpack here. Uh, so I think there's a there's a I think you would find plenty of people that are willing to do this. And it, I always wondered, sort of in the realm of keeping it in the realm of soccer charity, why baseball doesn't do, like, testimonial games. I know they have, like, New York Yankees have, like, Old Timers Day, and it's not exactly that. So when David Wright retires as a Met, God willing, in, in five years, they do a game where they, uh, you know, it's like a regular game. You pay, it's probably a little bit less for a ticket, where David Wright and, like, old Mets guys come together and his friends, you know, Michael Kodire, BJ Upton – you know, whatever guys he played with in high school and Mets legends or whoever else. You know, Derek Jeter comes back because he's another New York player, and they just play a baseball game. And it's, it, the rules are more, you know, freely subs. And it's kind of, you know, probably has the feel competitive-wise, but an old-timers game. But and then all the money goes to the players' charity of choice at the end. That's how the testimonials usually work. I think mean, something like that in baseball would be cool. Um, but there's just not like a I don't think, soccer. yeah, because there's a connection to the community. I think in a way that baseball doesn't quite have. Well, I also think
1: that soccer's more. It's it's better. It's a better pickup
0: game. Yes, there's that too. Um, and you know a lot you know if you're. You know I stopped playing baseball when I was fourteen, but a lot of these, of these guys who are probably. As good at soccer as I was at baseball, you know, they kept playing in, like, Sunday leagues, you know, into their, you know, pub leagues into their 20s and 30s. So their their skills are more, well, I'm not saying, like, you know, some high school hero wouldn't want to come out and play at City Field, um, you know, and pay the money and whatever. I mean, you see it with uh, Mets Fantasy Camp, basically. This is basically Mets Fantasy Camp. But you get to play in the stadium in the uniform. It's it's the same kind of concept, you know. There's uh, instead of having the old timers as coaches as players, they're coaches at fantasy camp. Um, but I think something like that could definitely work at City Field. I would do it. We could get an Amazing Avenue game together. That'd be kind of awesome. As opposed to our usual, uh, instead of doing the uh, with the Case for Kids, David Wright Case for Kids, get together like an Amazing Avenue sponsored charity game at City Field. It's true. We can definitely, I think we could fill out a couple 25-man rosters without too much of a problem. (laughs) Uh, But again, it comes down to, I just don't see the Mets doing that. And there's like liability issues, I'm sure too, with using the stadium and making it team branded. But I imagine the same issues apply to Fantasy Camp too. Um, Let's get to the meat and potatoes of this question. What would you pay and what position would you want?
1: Oh, man. I mean, the. I've to play in a pitch in that car, so it'd have to be one of those three. And uh, I'm not sure I'd be that kind of uh, throwing down a second base, so I'd yeah. probably have to
0: pitch in some fashion. See, I see. I was a pitcher, too. I'm just worried I would immediately blow up my elbow. Oh, yeah. If I just reach oh, back for something, and it would just not work anymore.
1: You know how it would take weeks for me to build up the arm strength to, to be able to, you know, fire the ball. in <laughs> there.
0: Yeah. I do Could think, too, like, good. soccer lends itself more to this because it's more of a... You know, if you can run a little bit and, you know, have a little guile, you're okay. But, like, the discrete set of skills you need to, like, swing a bat, I'm just, I don't think they age as well.
1: No, that, that's the other problem with this is that baseball's too fucking hard. You know, <laughs> it's just, like, catching and, and throwing and hitting a baseball. It's just, it's just so hard. I mean, I, you know, throwing a ball from home plate to second base never even come close to being an accurate throw so i'd probably be able to reach
0: it it wouldn't be accurate oh the i, the, I mean the amazing avenue charity game would be an absolute shit show. <laughs> it would be the way someone that watches short season minor then this is this is a whole nother level of bad. it would not be pretty It'd be worth it you know to wear the blue and white pinstripes yeah, you know, it, it is. It's sort of fantasy camp ish, but I like the idea of it being for charity instead of it being a bunch of like thirty five year old dudes reliving their glory days. Nice. Yeah. Um I will say I would definitely let's see, four hundred and fifty pounds, that's about I can do math. So bucks. I don't
1: know, exchange rate's really low these
0: days. Yeah, it's like one point six. So I think it's right around
1: Oh, pounds, yeah.
0: Yeah. I would, I would pay a lot. I'd be, I would almost pay more to to do it at Hillsborough. I think for Sheffield Wednesday, because I feel like you could do that without embarrassing myself. Still, you could hide me at, at like right back. I think
1: small, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. You could hide me at right back.
1: It's the whole thing with soccer. It's so much different because, like, um, as long as you can, you can like track the ball, and kick yeah, it, you know, in in, in two seconds, you you can pass. And not,
0: and look I've still maintained a basic I also pl- stopped playing soccer around the same time, but i maintained a basic level of you know, competency with terms of like strategy. I can do overlapping runs and cross it into the box, I can still sure, run a yeah. little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I can mark a guy if worst comes I mean, yeah, worse comes you know? yeah. yeah. to worst. Yeah. Running Yeah. Just don't ask me to do anything on set pieces and we'll be fine. Yeah. That
1: doesn't translate into baseball
0: like 450 for a half it's, i can only imagine what everybody wants to play striker because a you know at, you're at the age of the people that are going to do this it involves the least amount of running probably <laughs> and you know you get to put it in the back of the net but i'd even take the away side i like the away kit this year it's nice i i, mean, I own both so But it's, it's i think it's i think it is a good idea but i feel like the baseball does their charitable stuff in a different way. Yeah,
1: like pay money and check out
0: the clubhouse or something. Yeah, I mean, they do a lot, I know they do a lot of auctions. They do, like, game use, merch auctions and stuff like that for yeah. for whatever. But I think they don't want people, like, the other problem is, you know, with baseball, there's a game every day during the season, pretty much. Right, so when do you it? You know, when are you going to schedule it? Keep the grounds. So and Logistically, it's A bit of a a nightmare as well. But I'm totally, you know, I'll throw in a couple hundred bucks and I'll play second base. I mean, I feel like for the purposes of the joke on the Amazing Avenue charity game, I should probably play shortstop. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think I have the arm to make the throws from the hole anymore, though. I played a little short in second.
1: Also, it's it's a major league guy. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little bit
1: different than the ones we were playing on where
0: we're 14. You know? Well, 14, I think, was the standard standard field, like at least the ones that I played yeah. on. Yeah. I mean, there weren't like fences, it just like ran up to a lake. <laughs> it was probably like 450 to the lake. But other than that. <laughs> it's a long throw. It's still a long throw from the, yeah, you know, in the hole on the backhand, on the sheds, you know. 120, 130 feet. I could make it. My, I would immediately need to put like a salon pass patch on my shoulder, probably. I might just wear it for the game at that point. I don't throw things anymore. Yeah, it's, it's four Advil a and a bottle of beer, and I'll probably be able to get through the game without severely hurting myself. Those are your emails. Once again, you can email the podcast at podcast at amazonavenueaudio So now we'll take a little break, and welcome Steve Stipp to the show to help us plug the Amazon Avenue Regional Gathering. Here, are you actually going to be there this weekend, Greg? I'm going to try to get there. You uh, will, you? Well, you live in Manhattan, and you can't be bothered. It's a Saturday night. You're not. You're that. not doing anything. I have very little excuse, so.
1: We'll
0: see. I should be there. Welcome back. Joining the show now, as promised, to help plug the Amazing Avenue Regional Gathering here happening this weekend at the Ginger Man in Manhattan. Primarily because I don't remember a ton of last year's edition, for reasons that will become fairly clear fairly quickly in this segment. It's Steve Sippa. Steve, welcome back.
2: Thank you. How's everyone doing?
0: Doing well, doing well. I think before we get into the ARG plug, after having you on at Christmas to discuss pro wrestling, we need to at least touch briefly on last weekend's Royal Rumble. Now, you were supposed to go to this event live in Philly. So explain to our listeners what happened.
2: Well, I I bought my tickets a while ago, and I was very excited to go. So um, as I was driving down, I got off the Gothels Bridge, and I just got onto the Jersey Turnpike. Maybe two or three minutes after getting on, my hood suddenly flips up, smashes into my windshield, Glass goes flying everywhere. I can't see. Somehow, uh, I I make it onto the shoulder. I guess I was just very lucky that, a, a giant shard of glass didn't impale itself on me, and b that there wasn't really too much traffic on the highway, and I was able to get over safely.
0: Fortunately, you are not recently uh, in a situation where someone saved your life by having a psychic vision of a catastrophe in the future, in the near future.
2: Yeah,
0: no. No final destination (laughs) type scenario here, as I explained the joke after making fun of Greg Karam for doing it last week. Well, I actually had a similar thing happen going up to visit my mother-in-law, and the same. It was like one of those random things, and I managed to get to the shoulder too. So, I think when people see that, it's fairly like it catches your eye if you're driving nearby that person, and your reaction is to, okay, we're just gonna give them some space.
2: Yeah, it's definitely a good idea to do that.
0: So, needless to say, you did not make it to the unfortunately, unfortunately, to Philly for the Rumble.
2: But I guess in uh, you know in a very uh, macabre way, I guess it was good that I didn't go.
0: I don't know. Sometimes those terrible shows—we'll get to how terrible it was yeah. in a minute—can be kind of fun in their own way. Yeah, I've never actually, right right. and the Rumble itself, you would think at least. I mean, I've been—I've never been to the Rumble. I've been to a couple of WrestleManias. I've been to Survivor Series. <clears throat> but the Rumble is sort of something definitely I want. It's on my bucket list because it's just such a should be such a fun event.
2: It's just a lot of unpredictability.
0: I think it does top my best driving to indie wrestling shows in the early 2000s stories in terms of, like, chaos. (laughs) Uh, My my closest comparison point, I went to a show in Revere, Massachusetts, to watch uh, New Japan legend Jushin Thunder Liger, who was main eventing an ROH show, Ring of Honor, which was sort of the big northeastern indie promotion in the early 2000s it's still around today um but it was sort of the the showpiece you know cm punk came through there daniel bryan um cesaro when he was claudio castagnoli so a lot of sort of the big players in the current wwe scene spent some time in ring of honor uh paul london and brian kendrick were both there as well um so I, mean, I went up with a few friends from college. This was like probably 2002 or 2003. We did a little park and ride, took whatever line it was into Revere, and in Revere, Massachusetts. You know, it, it's it's not the best neighborhood in the Boston area. Uh, as a as a as a rule, it's not awful. I didn't feel unsafe walking around there or anything. But we got out of the show right around 11 o'clock. It ran long, and At the time, myself only being familiar with the New York City subway system, which never stops running, ran into uh, the T, which does stop running. Whoops. Yeah. And the last train we caught was going in the wrong direction. So we ended up after a a ride with a taxi cab driver who's going to take us to a bus station because the buses might still be running to the T station or near the T station in question where we had parked. Uh, that ended up not coming to fruition. We missed the last bus as well, I guess. like It's not even a real city, Boston. So we ended up staying at a uh, Holiday Inn, I think, that night, the four of us in two beds. So that was fun.
2: It's a bonding experience.
0: It is. And the other good one I have is going to a show in New Jersey to see Milano Collection AT, who at the time was also in New Japan, but I knew him from uh, Tori and Dragon Gate, which is my favorite Japanese wrestling promotion, really my favorite wrestling promotion of all time. And he was a big star there for a few years. Uh, he was doing a, a u.s tour and again on an roh show and this was before the days of gps this would have been like 2004 i think is when he left uh dragon gate from new japan uh ended up just horribly lost because i guess there was two there was at some american legion hall there were two streets in the city with that same name or the street changed names at some point so after stopping at like uh, a Wawa to try to get directions we were running like 45 minutes early we end up getting there just after the show starts, and I'm like, well, it was a crappy trip, but it's okay. There's no way like, he went on first or anything. We walk in. The match had just ended. And he's in the center of the ring with his hand raised.
2: Well, at least he won.
0: At least he won. Yeah, it was great. That was. Were there any,
2: were there any jug handles involved in this debacle?
0: Jug handles? No, I don't believe so.
2: Uh, I, I, I hate jug handles. They're the bane of my existence it's just the stupidest thing I hate Jersey for jug handles
0: yeah I don't th- I don't think it was just it was 2004 and we didn't have GPS yeah I had a flip phone that's where we were <laughs>
2: did you have the razor I had
0: the razor I had a Motorola yeah, razor go. yeah now it's like and sort of a funny counterpoint to that story is we were going to a show in Delaware CZW tournament of death
1: because <laughs> they
0: got kicked out of New Jersey for using light tubes or whatever and it was in Dover, at the, literally in the patio of some bar in Dover. And we drive into Dover early. And we're just like, we didn't actually look up the address for some reason. Or like how to get there.
2: We figure Delaware's like... Exactly, so it's like, it's we get off
0: at the exit, that says Dover. And we're like, well, should we like ask for directions? We knew the name of the bar. And my buddy is like, well, let's just drive down the, the this like you know, state highway strip for a while and see what happens. Literally within five minutes, we'd run into the bar. <laughs>
2: exactly, so we went, we, went to a, we
0: went to a Bob Evans for lunch, which is about as Delaware as you can get, I think.
2: Mm.
0: And then went to the show. So sometimes it works out well. I would have rather that happened for the, the Jersey show where I want to see Milano Collection AT instead of, like, Necro Butcher getting his tongue stapled to a turnbuckle.
2: Well, where else are you going to see a, another human being staple a person's tongue?
0: Only at CCW shows. mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So I guess we should get to the Royal Rumble proper now that we've killed some time with indie wrestling talk and <laughs> completely turned off whatever audience remains of the show. Um, the funny thing about the Royal Rumble, Steve, is the title match between Brock Lesnar, Seth Rollins, and John Cena—probably the best sort of three-way dance, triple threat match I've ever seen from the WWE.
2: It was very good.
0: It was—it's uh, was... you know an early contender for sort of match of the year depending on how you felt about the big new japan show matches but it's going to be something that's going to be tough tough for the company i think to top the rest of the year
2: right well, i mean you have brock lesnar who's obviously a marquee attraction just in and of himself you have seth rollins who's arguably the best actual wrestler that they have on their ros- on their main roster and then john cena is john he's, cena yeah he's this.
0: i mean yeah. love him or hate him and he it's he knows how to, how to crank
2: up the emotions.
0: Yeah, for either side. I mean, I, I, the singing along to the John Cena, su- John Cena sucks. Singing along to his theme when he came out was pretty choice. Mm-hmm. And it's a Philly crowd. It's just you have to understand something about the Philadelphia crowd. It's a little different than other WWE crowds or pro wrestling crowds in general because of the influence of ECW in the mid '90s. Now, that gets overblown, I think, sometimes on the internet and other places, but it's a little, they can get a little punchy.
2: As Mets fans, we should should (laughs) know that Philadelphia is just a hive of scum and villainy. So
0: So they were definitely cheering for Brock Lesnar the entire match, Mm -hmm. which is okay because Brock Lesnar is very awesome now. Like He was good in his initial run in the WWE, certainly. I enjoyed his work. Um, since he's come back from UFC and sort of incorporated that into his his character, I think he's just taken it up a notch in terms of right. the, sort of the way he presents himself in the ring.
2: The, the, you know, influence of MMA on wrestling and, you know, strong style wrestling from Japan and everything is a lot more prevalent nowadays than it was even, you know, 10 years ago or a little bit less when he was first, well, a little bit more, I guess, whatever, when he was first around and... He's just such a physical looking specimen that it really adds to his character. I mean, he was, uh, you know, he could do shooting star press, things like that back when he first started, which is very impressive, but.
0: I mean, it's... the guy, its he was an NCAA champion wrestler. Yeah. When he initially left WWE, he made the practice squad for the Minnesota Vikings, despite never having played football since high school. That's what kind of ridiculous. You know, athlete he is, and then he went to MMA and won the UFC heavyweight title quickly, for a guy with not a ton of mixed martial arts background in the interim. I
2: mean, mean, obviously,
0: you know, a heavyweight wrestling base is is a good place to start, but still.
2: Anyone who's never seen. You know, who, who doesn't know what Brock Lesnar looks like, I they really should just, you know, look it up. Because when we say he's a very physically imposing man, he is a very physically <laughs> imposing man.
0: And he, he uses it to good effect in the ring in terms of, like, performance in exactly. a way that, you know, other – he's just – everything he – he does, like, the little things really well. It's hard to describe to an audience out there that listens to this show and doesn't really have an encyclopedic knowledge of pro wrestling. So we'll, we'll gloss over it a little bit. But <laughs> – I think for my money, he's been and he works a part-time schedule because he has a weird contract after coming back from the UFC and there, it's unclear if he's going to re-up after WrestleMania. he might go back. he's sort of you know he has enough money, he can kind of do whatever he wants. and he's never really been into pro wrestling as a career like say John Cena or yeah. Seth Rollins or you know Triple H, who's sort of running the show right now. So he's kind of an odd duck in that respect, but he's just he's so good at it. it's frightening and the match itself turned a lot of the sort of the triple threat you know three guys in the ring only one can win cliches on its head and just it told a really cool story too basically brock lesnar cannot be killed
2: if if there was the only one criticism i had of the match it was that there was maybe too much time in between you know when lesnar was knocked out on the table and then when he was you know finally inserted back into the match
0: it feels like three or four straight shows where they really played up like the guy coming down with the stretcher to take somebody off
2: yeah, I mean, once in a while, it's fine. It adds to the dramatic effect, but too much, and then it kind of comes a cliche.
0: I will not say that, him popping in line right line. after Seth Rollins hit the Phoenix Splash was kind of amazing, though, yeah. <laughs> and then just killing both of them for the next five minutes.
2: That's why I say that I think that Rollins is overall the better wrestler than Daniel Bryan. I mean, you know, technically— ooh, hashtag think, hot take. Woohoo. Technically, you know, technical wrestling. I think Daniel Bryan is the better of the two, but I think Seth Rollins can include a lot more aerial techniques, whatever you want to call it. You know, things that are more visually impressive. But that's just me.
0: Well, you're think, entitled to your opinion. Exactly. And I've been I've been impressed with Rollins from what I've seen over the last few shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, which takes us to the Royal Rumble, which is impossible to screw up. It's great fun. Thirty wrestlers entering, entering every ninety seconds. It's just a great sort of showpiece event. It's 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 theater. And, of course, the winner gets the shot at this case. Uh, in this case, Brock Lesnar, who won the – or defended his title at WrestleMania. So it's sort of the kickoff of, like, the WWE season in a way. You know, the run-up from Royal Rumble to WrestleMania is sort of there, where they really focus on building week to week and building these storylines over a few months to keep the audience – interested sort of build to wrestlemania which is their showpiece show is sort of their biggest money event of the year uh to put another way it's their super bowl and leading up to it it seemed like roman reigns who was actually ex-partners with seth rollins and the shield was going to be the guy that was going to win and the wwe universe their fans have kind of a weird relationship with Roman Reigns, because he was big at last year's Royal Rumble. He set the record, I think, for most eliminations in one Royal Rumble. Mm-hmm. He got, you know, the crowd behind him really big there. Didn't end up winning. And since then, breaking out as a singles wrestler, I mean, he had a an acute appendicitis somewhere in there, too, so he missed some time, I think.
2: Yeah, between maybe...
0: September and... Yeah, about August. Yeah, early fall.
2: September, around there.
0: But in the interim, we've kind of realized as a fan base that he's not the best talker in the world. He's not the best wrestler in the world. Um, you know, he was kind of protected in this, in this triad with the shield where, you know, Seth Rollins could do a lot of the selling Dean Ambrose could do a lot of the talking and the crazy stuff. He just had to kind of look imposing in and spear guys, which was cool. It worked great. It was, but you know, now the sort of WWE champion, I, we've already spent way too much more time on this than I anticipated, <laughs> but here we are. Um, you know, there's certain you need certain clubs in your bag. You need to be able to talk. You know, one of the reasons it works with Lesnar is he has Paul Heyman, who's a you know, A plus wrestling manager who can talk for him. You need to be able to work long matches and, and be physically credible in them, which is something Reigns hasn't really shown he can do so far. I mean he really hasn't been put out there as a as a singles wrestler. I think he's untested in that regard.
2: Exactly.
0: As well, which is going to be an issue. And the Philly crowd specifically and WWE fans in general Don't really didn't really want Rollins shoved down their throat and some of that's weird to me like a weird change of attitude from before his injury or his appendicitis to now but it was something that was happening and they should have known it was happening especially when contrasted with the turn of Daniel Bryan um, was coming back off what was considered to be a career threatening neck injury. You know, a guy who won the title at WrestleMania last year. And so you think, well, maybe they'll audible and put it on Brian. Maybe they realize Reigns isn't ready. And then the show is going fine. They brought out, or the Rumble is going fine. They brought out Bubba Ray Dudley, an old ECW alum, to get the crowd jacked up. He did some of his signature spots. You know, Bray Wyatt got in there and kept eliminating guys, which killed the momentum a little bit. But it wasn't the worst thing in the world. Then Brian got in, and the crowd got pumped up again. And they just he randomly got eliminated. Yep. I'm like early. Obviously dumped out. Just, yeah. It was just sort of like a nothing elimination in the midpoint of the match. And the crowd immediately turned on the match. And not just like booed for a little bit. I mean, the, it they died.
2: Yeah, that was it. That was the turning. That
0: was they turned on everybody. It's it's just I've never seen that happen. I've seen you know, like MSG crowds do weird things. There was the uh, Lesnar Goldberg match at Mania. Right, WrestleMania right, right. 20, where they were both known it was leaving, they were both leaving the company and the crowd just, you know, crapped all over that match. But it was a one match thing. And the like, they run a little counter for the last 10 seconds. And one thing happens, Royal Rumble was they count along with the counter. They weren't counting along with the counter. It's like the one crowd spot that's impossible to screw up in professional wrestling is fans counting around, counting along with the Royal Rumble counter. And after Daniel Bryan was eliminated, they killed it. But they didn't stop there. They could have recovered with the Mizdow spot when he took it. When So without going into explaining these, <laughs> it's, complicated. it's complicated. But let's just say Damian Mizdow, popular fan attraction. He was in a tag match earlier in the evening, got over big with the crowd. They had him immediately dumped after he got in. Uh, Dean Ambrose, the third member of the Shield with Rollins and Reigns, uh, unceremoniously dumped. He made it to the final four technically. Uh, Dolph Ziggler, number 30, big hero of Survivor Series, knocked out by the Big Show, unceremoniously dumped. And all this builds around Roman Reigns coming in and getting booed like you would not believe. It was, it's almost incredible to watch it, because I've just never seen anything like it. Uh, And needless to say, Reigns overcomes the odds, eliminates both Big Show and Kane, which is crazy to have them in the Final Four, because everyone knows they're not winning the Rumble at that point. Um, And they're just sort of setting up like Roman Reigns against the authority, which is sort of their heel (laughs) boss stable, which is something they've, you know, well, they've gone to over and over basically for the last, what, 18 years at this point. We talked about sort of the origins of that on the uh, holiday show. Mm -hmm. And then the best part is The Rock, you know, The Rock, we all know The Rock. I think if you're listening to the show, you know who The Rock is. One of the most popular WWE superstars in history. I believe he's, is he vaguely related? Is he cousins with Roman Reigns? Or is that just like a Samoan thing where he's cousins with Roman Reigns?
2: I think all Samoans are actually related somehow. (laughs) They're all cousins. I don't really know how.
0: I don't know if they're actually, I mean, he was related to Rikishi, but he's not one of the, the Usos are the ones that are Rikishi's kids. So I don't know how that all, how plays out. But anyway, they know each other. He comes out, helps him clear the ring. And the crowd's still booing. Like, they popped for The Rock coming out, and then they just went back to booing. Then he raised, there's a great shot of him raising Roman Reigns' hand, the entire crowd booing. And The Rock just has this look on his face, like, what's going on? Like, I'm very confused.
2: I'm The Rock. This is not supposed to happen yeah.
0: to me. Uh, he didn't know, like, he literally did not know what to do with it. And I actually watched the post show, like, they did an interview with The Rock and Roman Reigns on the WWE network, and it just made it <laughs> worse. Because The Rock was, like, legitimately angry. Like, he was just, like, he didn't know what to do. You could tell he was pissed off.
2: gonna smack the lips off of that announcer's face
0: yeah and they've kind of doubled down on reigns since then because the wwe is nothing if not um stubborn you know vince mcmahon the owner and ceo is a a stubborn man they've decided it's going to be reigns lesnar at wrestlemania and i don't know what kind of damage it'll do to them long term but it was just watching the show was amazing because it's just it was the it was a kind of spectacle you don't see, like an like entire audience, like 20,000-plus people all turning on the show at the exact same time.
2: It was a blueprint in exactly what not to do.
0: Right. It's a, you know, it's like somebody – I saw some tweet on Twitter that basically said it would be the <laughs> – this would be like the climax, the midpoint of the rise and fall of WWE DVD that will come out <laughs> in some years. Uh, that's an exaggeration. They'll be fine. Fans will complain but they're going to watch WrestleMania. If for no other reason than to see what happens, um, and I don't think they'll pull the trigger on Reigns long term, but who knows? Uh, and the WWE specifically has always had sort of a slightly antagonistic relationship with its the most devoted sections of its fan base. And this is just another uh, entry in that chapter. I will say though, it it does seem silly to me to bring Daniel Bryan back just to have him eliminated unceremoniously like that
2: it was i mean they could have brought him back
0: after the rumble um given his injury issues and then built to whatever at wrestlemania they're going to build to anyway looks like it might be uh sheamus and just built to that match anyway and and the fans would have been happy with that but bringing him back before the rumble making it a, a big deal about him having to fight his way into the rumble and then having him just unceremoniously eliminated in the middle of it was a disaster
2: it's not like it was even any kind of any kind of plot line attached to it. Right, there's somebody, no storyline you can take out of it. He just somebody comes out from behind and nope. you know, nefariously removes him or or you know just nothing. It just he gets dumped over. He kind of sits there in the floor looks dumbfounded. Yeah. And then he's gone.
0: Like that could have been, you know, Big E getting eliminated that way. Yeah. It just he, he did not seem special or like a big star which he kind of is right now i mean we can debate sort of like the yes 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 chant whether he's just quote-unquote chant over but it seems like you know he's making radio hits for them in some ways he's along with cena the public face of the company Mm
2: -hmm. you
0: know he shows up on total divas their e-show since he's married to uh brie bella one of the people characters i mean whatever it's a reality show but it's not um (laughs) And they just don't seem to know. They never really seem to know what to do with them. So we'll see where they go from here. I mean, I just at this point just watch the pay per views in NXT. I think as we talked about it, on the holiday special. Yeah. But that was it. A well, weird yet impressive pay per view.
2: For the wrong reasons.
0: Oh, for all the wrong reasons. So the Arg, the Amazing Avenue Regional Gathering here, yes, is this weekend. So give the give the plug to the people.
2: All right. Well, it uh, as we touched on earlier, it is this weekend, Saturday february 7th it's gonna be at the ginger man which is a bar on east 36th between 5th and madison
0: you can take the uh nr well you can really take anything to harold square or the 456 to 33rd i think are the easiest ways to get there
2: you can even take anything you want to Times square and walk over
0: sure it's not a bad walk
2: that happened to me last year when I left. I kind of stumbled out slightly drunk, and I wasn't exactly sure where I was.
0: But I, I somehow I walked from the bar back to Grand Central, and I could not tell you how.
2: Yeah.
0: So what happened last year if you were there? Or if um, you've seen pictures that Chris McShane has posted of me slumped over on a chair? Um, there was a baseball prospectus prospect thing at Foley's right before then. And I went over there to put in some time. And I bought a drink. I ordered a drink. Uh, thinking it was six-point resin, drank it. I think I ran into Russ, who bought me another drink. And then some other dude after the event, before I left for the ARG, bought me one. Um, Apparently it was high res which is their double IPA. So I had a few of those without eating at, like, two in the afternoon, and then stumbled over to the ARG, where I basically passed out in a chair for most of the event. And then somehow walked back to Grand Central. That one okay, I haven't had year. a good time. I'm, I'm coming in. I'm coming in prepared. I have a strategy, <laughs> but I highly recommend it. It's just a, a you know, a meet up for Amazing Avenue writers and commenters and lurkers and whoever else.
2: Exactly. Last year we had about 15 to 20 people, give or take. Hopefully, <clears throat> again this year we have about the same amount. Maybe it would be nice if we had even more. And where else can you actually talk about you know f war
0: xfip or you know you won't be don't bring up xfip in my presence unless you're um, unless you've got about 15 20 minutes to kill when i go off on it after a couple beers but that
2: might be interesting it I'll might be jeff get jeff drunk and have him talk about XFIP.
0: i can, we can talk about all kinds of things off the record at the at the arg if that's your uh, if that's your uh, preference very great oh. great tap selection there i've already been scouting it out ahead of time
2: yeah, there's a lot of beers. They have, they do have food, so if you are hungry, you can order something.
0: I actually um, ate there fairly recently because it's not too far from Football Factory. So I think in between a Wednesday game and a New York Red Bull game, I walked over there with some buddies of mine and had lunch, and it was it was food there pretty good.
2: Yeah, um, it's kind of I wouldn't say it's small or anything like that, but you know it, it get get crowded.
0: You can, especially on a Saturday evening.
2: Yeah, um, last year we, we kind of...
0: Commandeered the back room, which is yeah, my plan made, for this year. We may do. Yeah.
2: For anyone who is going to be coming and is listening to the podcast right now, we'll be in that kind of back room corner because we're nerds, so of course <laughs> we be in the corner.
0: If I'm uh, feeling ambitious, I may bring my little podcast setup up here that I'm using now and do a little Q&A, especially after a couple of beers that can get a little punchy. So it may or may not end up getting published, or even happening. We'll see. But it's something to uh, certainly look forward to. I hope to uh, see you there, and I hope to hear. F- or I hope you tune in next week for another edition of Amazing Avenue Audio.